Welcome to the second season of the PEBC podcast. My name is Michelle Morris-Jones, and I will be hosting our series on phenomenal teaching. In season two, we will take a deeper dive into how the strands of the PEBC teaching framework, planning, community, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment, cultivate student agency, equity, and understanding for each and every student. I am honored to share these conversations with authors, classroom teachers, education leaders, and staff developers with you. Today's episode is sponsored by Pinnacle Assurance, Colorado's trusted workers' compensation provider. Thank you so much for listening in. Katherine Bomer is a writer and teacher of writers. Her many books have helped countless teachers craft writers' workshops and experiences for students that build off of students' strengths, elevate craft, and honor student individuality. She has illustrated the ways in which the essay can come to life in The Journey is Everything. In Writing a Life, she takes a common memoir and expands its power to show kids how far their writing can go. And in For a Better World with Randy Bomer, Catherine encourages us to examine how writing can change the world. It is a great honor to have Catherine as a guest on the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. The PEBC teaching framework consists of planning, community, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment. And Catherine is joining me today to talk about the importance of asset-based assessment. Welcome to the podcast, Catherine. How are you? Oh, great. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much. And thank you to PEBC for inviting me to have this conversation with you. I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing great. It is almost springtime. And it just seems like talking about asset-based assessment just seems like the perfect topic for this time of year and where we are in this crazy year of education. Just growth and flourishing, and I just can't wait to dive in with you today. Oh, great. Me too. (laughs) Well, I was thinking a little bit about hidden gems. And in that text, which, you know, every teacher of writers has on their shelf and is dog-eared and, you know, it's probably been dropped in the bathtub and, you know, has all the sticky notes and all of that, um, you wrote about the importance of naming and teaching from students' brilliance. Mm-hmm. So that idea of naming what kids can do, what they can do well, and then using that as a jumping off point for instruction. And also, I think in that text, you really invited all of us to expand our vision of quality. What does quality really look like? How can we specifically identify student strengths beyond good job? And what are the ways in which we can respond to student writing that really honors all of those strengths? So my question for you is, what are you thinking now? How has your thinking about assessment evolved or changed since you wrote that text? Uh, oh, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a great question because actually I am a person who can't sit still in my mind and, and am constantly rethinking things and retrying and, re- and learning um, you know, from reading and from listening and going to conferences and all that. So that's a perfect question because um, Hidden Gems was uh, came out in like, 2010. Mm-hmm. So it's been a while. <laughs> um, and so it, um, well, it, what's fun, what's fun about this, the hidden gems, the asset based lens is that it is both, um, I have grown my thinking around it. And also it just is a lens that continues to, uh, be in my face. I mean, just what you were talking about this, this year that we've been through to <laughs> how, how hard is it to have an, um, 
an asset best lens lens about asset based lens about it like to look at what you know what what was what are the silver linings in it and you know um uh with everything that's going on in the world it, it is so sometimes difficult but so important to think about what what have we gained you know right. instead of constantly talking about what have we lost what have we gained and um I, you know we need to go into because that's a whole long another long conversation of what we gained this past year but um to bring it back to uh thinking about hidden gems and looking at student writing um i have uh I continue, of course, to have an appreciative asset-based lens on student writing. I don't. I think it's kind of born into me to see kids writing through appreciative eyes because I just think children are geniuses, and um, I really do. I honestly believe that they are the geniuses and the and the wisdom holders of the of the world, and that we just kind of start to lose our genius as we get older and older. How sad is that? Um, <laughs> but. Um, I look at their writing. I think it's because I am a writer myself, and because I'm an avid reader, and I have been since I was, you know, young. That I, um, I can, I admire writing. I admire creativity in writing, and so when I read students' writing, I just see all this freshness and originality that I try to bring into my own writing. You know, it's, it's hard work mm -hmm. to sound fresh and creative and original, and um, kids are so great at it. Um, so the the appreciation of it and the um, and using that appreciation to assess what individual students are able to do and where to and where to go from there uh, remains a constant. But what I've learned is in uh, the past year or two um, was pushed my thinking is reading a lot of um, scholars of color, um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color uh, writing in ways that are. Um, you know, some of them have been around for a while and I've been reading for a while, but also just there's been a, um, a just a gorgeous blossoming of of new texts to read. And I've been lately particularly influenced by Dr. April ba Baker Bell, Dr. April Baker Bell, um, who uh, it, who has in her writing um, has just uh, talked about. You know, she's so brave. She just actually names that the um, the English that we teach in and have uh, historically taught in schools is white supremacist English, <laughs> and that it is um, it what we teach in terms of writing and speaking in schools tends to be anti-black linguistic racism. And she to just for ha for her to put those names on what I feel to be true was so powerful for, for me. And so I've started to become more powerful about noticing and naming that that is indeed what we do, what we call standard or mainstream English um, as if it's, you know, just like has always been there as if English is some monolith thing that has always been there. And it's, and a certain way to do it is the correct way to do it. Um, I just disagree with that wholeheartedly and um, have been more brave lately about bringing in um, other ways of of language, um, both English and um, other languages. Um, and I've been helped in that work by um, Carmen España and Luz Herrera with their wonderful book and Comunidad, um, thinking of kids' uh, ways of bringing in um, Spanish into their English writing and just trying to expand the notion of what 
quality writing is, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> how to enjoy and appreciate and celebrate and elevate all the ways that kids speak and write, um, has just been a very, a, a place that I'm really working into lately. Wow. I mean, Catherine, that is incredible. And when you think about that idea of expanding our definition of quality or expanding our definition of a standard, then looking for assets in student writing, I think becomes even more exciting. It's totally more exciting. It's, it's joyful. And that is one thing we need much more of in our classrooms is joy and celebrating all children in the classroom. I also think it, it, it's more authentic because when I think about like the writing that appears in the real world, there's a different, there's a different um, way in which language and words are used. And you think about some of, you know, your favorite narratives or those favorite novels or some nonfiction. And if you're reading beyond authors that you've always read yes. and you're starting to read works of other authors, you get to see a play with language or a use of language that is so intriguing and just captures you as a reader. Absolutely. Uh, so I have a stack of poem, poem book, poetry books right over here to my left that are just all um, Black and Latina, Latinx writers, and I just am dipping into them. I have a little ritual every day of dipping into these poetry books just to just swim in the language play of writers who, yes, exactly. I, I was not reading when I was in high school. I wasn't allowed to read it when I was in high school. Those these mm-hmm. people were not on the on the reading lists, and so um, there is. So that that brings me to another thing that I've the way that I've pushed my um, asset based uh, assessment is is to not only appreciate and take joy in the way that um, other voices re- write and speak, but to actually learn from. Mm-hmm. So I have this little continuum that now that's um, I've been writing about and, and speaking about that goes from the 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 left the you know it's a continuum so it progresses from left to right but um it's so so it's sort of the word the the most evil end of the continuum is <laughs> is what we have unfortunately in our country we have the history of silencing literally silencing children's voices um, everything from you know, being si- all children needing to be quote silent in the classroom, not being allowed, literally not allowed to talk in in mm-hmm. classrooms, and that right, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> I remember that. Um, but also silencing, um, particularly uh, indigenous children's language, children who were, um, you know, brought to boarding schools and then told, you know, literally pu- punished for speaking their native languages. Um, so that silencing of language and and voice um, to then um, a, a, a correcting would be sort of next along the continuum where we where we have you know we're teachers so we think that we isn't that our jobs is is to look at what's wrong or missing in student writing and fixing it or correcting it or telling kids to correct it um, but the problem is unfortunately that correcting has a it's a very oppressive. Um, uh, strategy for uh, to be on the other end of being corrected is it feels oppressive. It feels um, sometimes dehumanizing 
and it feels critical. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it, unfortunately, you know, there are two or three kids in every classroom who will say, yes, tell me what I'm doing wrong. I just want to know what I got wrong and so I can fix it, right? We all know those mm -hmm. kind of kids. But most kids, most human beings respond to that kind of correcting of their actual language as um, being treated less than, as being, you know, that it feels mm -hmm. I'm wrong. I can't do this. I don't understand what you're saying. Um, I feel less than. And, I, you know, we all have kids who, by the time they're in fourth grade, by the time they're in eighth grade, just turned off, literally turned off to language learning and, lang and you know, writing especially. And so um, I just know that that, that, you know, that, that deficit sort of correct, correcting lens is one that ends up with the opposite of what we want, which is kids right. feeling flexible with language. And then next on, the, on my continuum is a, a, a lens of um, tolerating. So, that, so we, we, we hung out there for a while th um, thinking about how can we tolerate the, uh, the fact that kids <laughs> um, speak different languages or speak English in different ways uh, from the standard. And so it felt more accepting perhaps, but it was, mm -hmm. but tolerating certainly has the um, an, a double meaning of just, I'm merely tolerating this. I don't like it, but I know I'm supposed to tolerate it. It's kind of like how you tolerate the weather or whatever, because you know you have you don't have a choice. Um, right. So it's not we, we don't want to stay stay inside there because it's not enough, and it still doesn't have a feeling of ex, um, appreciation and joy. So then moving to the appreciation, the asset based lens of saying I you know I love the way you said this. You said you know the, the way you phrased this idea about love is so original and uh, you know writing about love is so difficult some pe pe poets struggle over how to write about love in new and creative ways and the way you phrase this is so different and 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 fresh i love it um so that's the appreciative lens but then to then i've pushed it even more to say can I actually learn from the way this student wrote? Including, by the way, students, the, the students that I learned most from are about four and five years old. <laughs> <laughs> the, the writers that I am most learning from are four and five years old because they are so, oh, the ways they use visuals, the ways they represent on the page in, in visual ways and also in words, right? Um, just cracks my mind wide open. And I, one of my favorite things, one of the things that comes out of me so often in classrooms is with kids is, um, I love the way you, you drew this and wrote this. Can I, I oh man, I, I would love to borrow it. <laughs> can I borrow this for my own writing? <laughs> and they always say, you can have it, Ms. Bower, because, you know, kids are so utterly generous and generative. That, you know, I've got lots more where this came from. You can have that. <laughs> so I actually have incorporated, um, honestly have incorporated phrases and ways of saying things into my own poems that came from kids. So that, that sort of that journey for me um, and also hoping to bring more and more people along on that journey of appreciating kids where kids are and how they use language and also even actually being able to learn from and saying I you know I haven't uh I, I have this little boy's piece of writing in an article that I wrote for language arts it's coming out in July um where I his drawings 
are, he's six years old in, um, and his drawings are so utterly joyful and delightful. Like, you know, just balloons floating all over inside the car that he's driving and stuff. And, and I said, and my, I literally said to myself, you know, I don't have enough joy in my writing. <laughs> I mean, what are my balloons? Can I, can I look back through some of my um, pieces of writing and figure out where to put more balloons? <laughs> and, you know, metaphorically speaking. Yes. Um, because I really don't, I don't, I, I go to the dark side really quickly in my, in my um, poems, in my essays. <laughs> and, I think, <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, I'm getting tired of that. I, where can I put more balloons in my writing? And so, I mean, I, that's honest. That's an honest assessment of that child's writing <laughs> that I was just struck by. <laughs> Well, and I think it's so interesting to think about your continuum because as a person of a certain age um, and growing up writing and good age and, mm-hmm. <laughs> <good> age, <laughs> um, and then teaching for a number of years, you can see these phases play out in the classroom intentionally or less intentionally. Yeah. And I think one thing that you have really elevated for us today is the importance of moving beyond silencing, correcting, and tolerating into that appreciation stance. And it's interesting because one of the quotes in Hidden Gems that has really jumped off the page for me is, is this. This moment of naming is like a spotlight, an insight, a reflection, a blessing. It is not judgmental. It names what is and how perfectly that works for now. It is enough. And so when I, you know, hear you talk today and I think about that quote, my question for you is the, so what, like, what does this mean for kids? What's the power in this work of asset-based assessment for children? And I know that you work with writers who are four and five-year-olds, but you also work with young adult writers and high school age, you know, students and college age students. So thinking about, you know, kids as a very large band of, of age, <laughs> what is, what's the impact on kids if we think about assessment this way? Mm, that is such a great question because it really gets to the heart of, so what, <laughs> you know, which mm-hmm. is the question about everything we do in education. So what, meaning what is the purpose and what is the impact, right? Um, and so when you say kids, I, I love that you, you, you know about me that I do teach college level kids also. And, and I'm going to say, um, I also, when I'm, when I'm invited to and, and able to, I also work with teachers on their writing. And so they are my kids too during that period. We're all the kids. Exactly. And you know what? I'm going to say that every writer from age three to whatever up there, um, that I've worked with, when I slow down, read, read their writing, look at their writing, talk with them about their writing, and find something to name that that writer, whoever it is, whatever age, is doing well and beautifully and or, or originally and um, you know artfully, uh, and name it for them. And I try, I work really hard and naming it specifically, as you say, not just saying good job, but naming specifically like right here, your voice is like, um, it sounds like a drum beating, like rat-a-tat-tat. And it really fits what you're writing about, this sort of steady drum beat of rain or, you know, whatever. I try to name it very specifically and say how it's affecting me as a reader 
and how um, you're really amazing at that. Your voice is amazing in these ways, right? And every single time, no matter what age the writer is, um, he or she will say something like, um, well, certainly they start the faces, the faces beam, you know, Uh little kids, you just, they, their, their shoulders go back, they sit up straight, (laughs) this beam on the face, um, people who are teachers in uh, in different generations of their, of their lives are, um, often cry when I say these things, Uh because how often has that happened for them. You know, people who are not practiced writers, you know, people who don't think of themselves as writers, how often have they had someone say, look what you, Michelle, do so well in your writing. Look what, you know, look what you bring to this art that is so your voice, your specific voice. And it just, um, I believe, I have come to believe that that moment of naming specifically for that writer is actually teaching <laughs> because mm-hmm. especially with little kids, they don't necessarily know that they don't necessarily know what they're doing. And so my naming it for them, they say, well, yeah, I do do that. I am the kind of writer who does that. And then they, I say, and keep doing that. That is a powerful quality of writing. You do it so well already. Look at this. We can learn from this and keep doing it. And so right, right there, I have already taught them something, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, and Absolutely. taught it in a way that sticks because they do start walking around saying, I am the kind of writer who can write the, a steady drum beat. <laughs> it's exactly my, my words sound like a steady drum beat. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, and so it's, t- it, that moment is teaching and it sticks. And then from there, I can say, and let's see what else we can look at, or let's see where else in the writing you can bring more of that voice into so that it all coheres together. You know, I can, I'm, I'm just making things up right now, but I can always find w- where we can go from there or, mm-hmm. you know, um, how can we take what you do so well now and sort of spread it and, and, and um, make it even better. And my inference and also from my experiences as trying to write not saying that I am a writer, but I have <laughs> written a couple of things and yes. I, you know, always attempting to grow as a writer. Um, I would also guess that by having one's strengths named or identified or lifted off the page also then creates a space for risk in which I want to try new things or set new goals for myself or play with that craft in even different ways or, you know, across across products, if you will. Well, absolutely. Because first of all, being appreciated just opens up your heart and mind. Mm, mm-hmm. So instead of me coming over and saying, um, even even well-intentioned, my, with my best intentions, sitting down next to you and the first thing I say to you is, um, oh, what happened to your punctuation? <laughs> Where did your punctuation go? <laughs> you know, look at all these places that there aren't capitals or whatever. You know, um, I, I'm being, I'm playing the, a, you know, a, a some kind of television type teacher right now. But also I've had teachers who, you know, classically we turned in our papers and they came back to us with red ink all over them, right? And fix this, right. correct this. Um, so there was not an appreciation of my voice <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in my writing, right? When I was, um, yeah, there's, you know, until I found the one teacher who said, you're a poet. Um, and that changed everything, <laughs> changed right. everything. So let's just take that as an example. That 
her naming me and her saying, look at your use of language. It's so poetic. You are a poet. And so her naming me in that way, and it wasn't until I was a senior in high school, unfortunately, um, that to have a teacher who did that for me. Well, then she was able to teach me everything mm-hmm. because she had opened my heart and opened my sense of self, opened who I am as a writer. And so then later she was able to even tell me, you know, <laughs> I remember because it hurt, but she said, you know, you can't, this is a banal way of saying this, she said to me. And of course, I didn't know what <laughs> banal meant. I didn't know how, even how to pronounce it, banal, but <laughs> what is that? I had to go look it up. And of course, it kind of hurt, you know, because it came from my hero, but she was just able to teach me everything and help me improve as a writer because she had opened me up for the risk. So I think that kind of leads to my next question. And, you know, your most recent book just came out last March. Is that right? Yes. A you know, year right ago. in the midst right of everything midst. a year ago. And the name is A Teacher's Guide to Writing Workshop Essentials, Time, Choice, Response. And you co-wrote that book with Corin Ahrens. Mm. And when I, you know, take a look at, at the pages it is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. It is visually stunning. It is full of student work. There are so many examples. And again, you dive into the importance of asset-based assessment or response Yes, in that particular text. But my question for you, and for probably all of us listening right now is, so Catherine, honestly, what does this mean for teachers? Like right now, like how can we take this asset-based approach and really put it into practice in our classrooms for our young writers? Because I think that there's, you know, everyone listening probably agrees with everything you've shared. Mm-hmm. That, oh, that is right. The time someone did point out my own strengths, it did help me grow. However, when I'm in a classroom with 20 <laughs> writers or 35 writers, and I have that binder with the standards <sighs> sitting over yes. here, and I might have some curriculum that someone's given me over here, and... I'm moving through my writer's workshop if I'm able to, you know, have that structure, hopefully. Um, but how, how might teachers really embrace and implement this asset-based approach to assessment and instruction? Hmm. Let's see. We have a couple of minutes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> right. No, listen, number one, I need to give all my heart and and my gratitude to teachers. <laughs> I have this whole past year, I have said, if I hadn't said once, I've said it a million times, how would I have done it? If I had been in the classroom this year, mm-hmm. how would I have done what teachers have done this year? Moving in and out of the building, learning how to use technical I can't even say the word technological, much less do it. Learning how the, all these technical ways of teaching overnight, um, how to draw kids in when you're talking to them on a screen. I mean, it just goes on and on and on with what teachers are dealing with and including now looking forward this spring, unfortunately, to also doing standardized tests. I mean, it's insanity. Right. It's insanity. I love how you just took a moment, though, to appreciate all the teachers because they're the heroes. They are the heroes. And when you look back at this time and we read what was ever written, I hope so much that that history remembers that because 
it is the teachers that that kept communities together, families together, Absolutely. kids together. Absolutely. And they, and they did it in ways that no one had imagined before. Amen. Mm-hmm. So teachers, so, you better start thinking of what is your wish, wish list? <laughs> what is your wish list that we could give you to say thank you? Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> um, okay. So I just wanted to say that and to say, so I can imagine just what you said, this classroom of, well, I, you know, I had, I had 29 or 30 at a couple points of, in my classroom, in my teaching Absolutely. experience. Um, and how did I do it? Um, it's not easy. I just want to be honest. It's not easy, uh, especially with all the uh, things that are being asked of teachers now, including those, the the curriculum and the standards and the tests, and that all of all of which, by the way, say something that's different from what I'm saying. <laughs> and I know that. I know that. I understand that. I also know um, that, as I said earlier, the other way doesn't work. <laughs> the the way of of um, you know, pushing kids and, and forcing their voices in their speaking and or writing voices into a box that is not their box does not work. It only destroys souls. <laughs> um, so we must have a, an appreciative lens. And if we can just learn to carry that inside our bodies and inside and on our faces in every single moment of the, of the day, you know, every single interaction with every child. Um, and then I, I, when we're faced with student writing that is, um, you know, different, <laughs> um, that doesn't fit standards. And we know that in order for this child to pass into the next grade or for this child to do well in this situation where there is going to be some more, need to be some more standardization. Again, I ask to just begin with what they do well, find something to name that they do well. And then um, if we're, if we're struggling to do that, uh, I suggest finding time to work with a friend or a couple friends in your building colleagues and say, I'm really struggling with this with students writing. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with what, what to say to name that they're doing well. And, and what can I teach? You know, how can I work with this student to make it better and, and get other eyes on it with you? You know, we don't, we so often are so isolated and especially now with computer stuff, but um, we're so isolated and we think we have to do it all by ourselves. If you're struggling with a child, you know, stu- certain student, take it to some friends, get some other pairs of eyes on it and, and say, let's look at what's going well here. Let's take a minute and just name. And I, I've done it a million times with groups of teachers, so I know it's, it's possible. People will come up with the loveliest things to say about that student's writing and just steal them. Say, thank you. Thank you. I, was, I couldn't see that. I'm, you know, we're, we're in an interaction here in the classroom and I could not see that about her. Thank you for giving me that little gift. I'm going to go straight back to her in the classroom today and tell her, do you know what Michelle saw in your writing? That, and I'm, as soon as she said it, I was like, yes, you're exact. She's exactly right. And give it to that child as a gift. Mm-hmm. I think that is a beautiful starting point because really you're asking the question, what's going well? And if for some reason we can't see it, which sometimes we can't, asking a colleague. Yes. Just that same question, what's going well? And from there, we've we've absolutely like flipped that script. We're just starting with what's going well. And then we know that we have goals to work on. 
as a class or as individuals or as small groups, but starting with that strength seems like a step we can all take. I think we have to take that step. Mm -hmm. And so I know that that's not a, a fun answer of here's five things to do, five tips to do, um, tomorrow in your classroom. It's really a mindset and a soul set. Oh, I just made that up. Soul set. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm going to steal that word. Thank you. Soul set. There's a balloon in our writing. Oh, yeah. A mindset and a soul set. I, here's the thing. It's not five tips, but when we have that mindset and that soul set about students, about our students, it changes everything. It changes the culture of the classroom. It changes the air in the classroom, the climate in the classroom. Children are happier. We are happier because they are happier. <laughs> and it's a happier place to go to. And, you know, we, at the end of this, whatever it looks like when we return to school in what, whatever form or fashion our future looks like, what we know is uh, – it has to be a happy place because too much is happening in the world that is not happy and downright um, distressing and destructive. And just, and what can we do about it, we ask? Well, this is one little answer that I have because I've seen it. I've seen it change children's lives to feel themselves to be seen and named as beautiful and brilliant, no matter how they speak and write. And once that changes for that individual child, it just spreads like some kind of beautiful magic into the entire classroom. And that makes our jobs as teachers easier and more fun. And I feel like this message is so important in any year, in any month, in any week in education. But as we all return to schools and classrooms and our children are able to return, or kids, regardless of age, I think that we need joy and we're going to need that asset approached. We're going to have to be able to see what's going well because everyone's going to arrive with you know a different level of experience and um, they're going to bring different gifts and they're going to bring different assets and they're going to have different needs. And I think that, that having that mindset or that soul set is going to carry us into classrooms that are joyful. That's beautiful. <laughs> where we can write. And so in closing, I would love to revisit for a better world. I know that that text is very, very special to you and it's particularly special right now. Mm. And so, you know, why, why is that resonating for you right now? And what might our listeners find in that piece as they navigate these challenging times with their students? Oh, man, Michelle, you've opened up a whole another <laughs> another episode. Another episode. <laughs> Randy, my husband, Randy Bomer, and I wrote that book, For a Better World, Reading and Writing for Social Action, 20 years ago. Uh, so it's another anniversary <laughs> of a book. And that book came out right after 9-11 and where uh, this whole country was just in shock and mourning. And I felt then like, well, I don't care about this book. You know, who cares about a book coming out 
I mean, look at our world, look at what's happening, you know, look at the, all the people who are grieving. And, and then I thought someone said to me, um, yes, but this is, isn't this the perfect book for this moment? <laughs> like to, to think about what, you know, how to bring critical um, conversations to the classroom and how to make, how to help kids think about m- making a better world through their writing. And I thought, okay, yeah, okay. I hope so. I hope so. And so <laughs> weirdly, you know, that it's 20 years old and we toyed around with, you know, would we write a, a, a revised edition in in year 20 and, and look again when it comes out, the timing of this, right? And so I, I, I don't know if we will or not, but for a better world is why I teach. And so even though I'm, you know, a writer and I mostly work with teachers and kids on their writing, the underneath of it, the foundation of it, of everything I do is to make the world a better place for every single human being on this planet. And so um, (laughs) I think, I hope that that's why we all teach. Mm -hmm. Wow. Catherine, today you've given us so much to think about, Um, just ways to move forward. Like you said, your mindset and that soul set and making classrooms in the world a better place for kids is our moral imperative. And I know that, you know, one of the purposes of this podcast, the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast, is really to address that question. How do we teach for agency, equity, and understanding? Mm, And I think, yeah, I I think that's tied into everything that you shared. Um, So thank you. Thank you so much, Michelle. It was so much fun. It was so much fun. joining us today. I hope our time together bolstered your agency and understanding. I would like to thank our sponsor. Pinnacle Assurance is Colorado's leading workers' compensation provider. For over 100 years, they've been at the forefront of protecting, understanding, and caring for workers and local businesses with trusted coverage and expert safety resources and services. The ways we work will undoubtedly evolve, but the need for worker protection always remains the same. In closing, PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, and works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding, as described in Wendy Wardhofer's newest book, Phenomenal Teaching. PEBC provides customized, on-site professional development and coaching for schools and districts, facilitates a variety of institutes and seminars, and offers an array of online learning experiences for all educators. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram.